Welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Doug Belshaw. And I'm Laura Hilliger. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com slash weareopen. Uh, we've got some badges now for people who back our projects on Open Collective. Uh, so they're winging their way digitally to all of our supporters, and we really appreciate it. Doug, what are we doing today? Well, we have Anna with us today. Anna Hilliger. Say hello, Anna. Hi. <laughs> um, Anna's been interning with us and is now a collaborator with our co-op, and we'll get more into what you've been doing with us later. But our first question to you is, as always with all of our guests, the book question. So, Anna, what's your, your favorite book or books? We can give you more than one if you want. Yeah, I think I have to go with more than one because uh, this is a very difficult question. And I've been thinking about it for weeks now. <laughs> um, and yeah, basically, I can just say a book that somebody else said before on this podcast. It's Invisible Women, because I think it's just a very powerful book that has loads of insights and data for things that I and also I think other women are constantly feeling and this one is backing my feelings which is which is good and i can throw data at people yeah it's, all, it's always good to have a statistic or two in your pocket yes for sure it took me a long i so this is the one that laura gave to me after one of these podcast episodes and it took mm -hmm. me like i usually read books pretty quickly but it took me so long to read exactly for that reason you gave on it like the number of statistics and um and also just mind-blowing things as a as a man um yeah that kind of makes sense as a result of, of reading that book oh as a as a woman too i mean you know i didn't I, it never even crossed my mind some of the things um that we interact with in our daily lives that are designed for men um you know like the thing you know the, the funny one that people always reference is how small our pockets are how small women's pants pockets are that you can't fit anything into them um, but also things yeah. like, you know, I always thought that the reason that I couldn't open, like unlock my phone with one hand was just because I am, you know, incompetent. But it turns out actually that the average phone size is created uh, for, for the average size of a, of a male hand as opposed to women. So they're a little bit bigger than they should be for women. How did you come across that, that book? Can you remember? Uh, yeah, I think Laura actually showed it to me uh, one day. <laughs> uh, so I I think I also borrowed hers. It's at my place right now. So if you're looking for it, I have it. <laughs> and, no, I uh, you're the only person that I let borrow books. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, we're exchanging our feminist library from time to time. So yeah, I came across this book because of Laura and... Um, yeah, I, I couldn't read it like in one sitting or like very fast. It's just you occasionally take a look and find out something new. And it always changes some some thoughts that I have. Yeah, it's great. Anna, do you have a fiction book that's your favorite fiction book? Yeah, I've been also thinking about that. And I think like I can't really name a single one, but I think all the books by Margaret Atwood are pretty good i didn't read all of them but uh for example oryx and craig is a is an awesome book and yeah i think she's good with fiction but also with putting some realness into it 
Yeah. So, so this is the author of The Handmaid's Tale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Prophesying the future. It's almost like the far right playbook on how to treat women in society. Yeah. After after Roe versus Wade uh, was like going on in America, and they did, did all of this, she just posted on Twitter, "I told you so," which I thought was kind of hilarious, even though it's tragic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really want science fiction writers um, to be posting "I told you so." <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, no. And how did you get into Margaret Atwood's books? Um, I think I watched uh, the, uh, uh, there was a show on Netflix, not The Handmaid's Tale, but another one, um, I forgot the name, it was a miniseries, um, and I watched it and I thought the storyline was uh, great, and then I started reading a book and I found one of the books at, uh, at my brother's house uh, in a bookshelf and I borrowed it, and yeah, that's how I came across it. So do you read... Do you tend to read those books in English or in German? Uh, both. So Invisible Woman is in, in English. Uh, Margaret Edward, I read some of them in English and some of them in German. So, yeah, depends oh, okay. what I what I can get. Ah, uh, that must be interesting. Be, I guess with fiction books, it's a bit different. But I guess with nonfiction, if you read them in different languages, I wouldn't know this because I'm sadly monolingual. But I guess <laughs> they'd have a different... I don't know. You'd feel like the author was had a different voice or something. Yeah, for sure. Like especially with fiction, I think it's it's right. totally different. But I think it's easier than reading nonfiction in in English. Um, yeah, I because nonfiction I, is more analytical. Yeah, more difficult oh. words. I I also feel like the reason that I read most of my nonfiction in English is because I feel like if I'm a lot of the nonfiction that I read is stuff that influences work I do. And I work mostly, almost predominantly in English. And so I feel like if I'm learning, learning things in another language, it's going to be hard for me to actually use them practically in my day to day with nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But with fiction, I, I like to read a book in English and then read a book in German and then read a book in English and then German. I just kind of go back and <laughs> forth. So not yeah, that same. my German grammar has gotten any better, but you know. <laughs> A lot better than mine. So this season, we're talking about different types of learning. So online, offline, structured versus unstructured, all that kind of thing. We've talked to all kinds of people. Uh, we, we talked to uh, Ped, who designs workshops and trains other people how to do workshops. We've talked to the head of learning development at Greenpeace, all different kinds of people. Aaron, for a cooperative kind of approach. Um, and we're interested in this podcast to dig into kind of your own learning journey, Anna, kind of the way that you design things as well. So how did you get, how did you arrive at this podcast today um, after being born at a young age? <laughs> oh, that's a quite long story. Uh, no, my, <laughs> like, if we talk education, I, uh, like, went to a school, like most people do. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that was a school where, like, we already did lots of, like, project-based learning and, like, group works and the classes were mixed classes, so younger people were mixed with older people so that we can teach each other. And so I was there until 10th grade. Uh, I don't know what's that in different languages. What, what age is that? Uh, 15. 
So I finished school when I was 15 because uh, actually everybody was expecting for me to go uh, longer to school, but I just didn't feel like doing it anymore because I just didn't like going to school and I didn't do my homework <laughs> and everything was just annoying. I didn't like learning. Um, so I told my family, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And they were all like, okay, but what else? And then I um, started a vocational training afterwards uh, for three years and went to a different school, but also had more, more practical stuff working at a uh, like marketing agency. Started learning how to build websites with WordPress and uh, yeah, media, media design basics. Um, and I did that from 15 till I was 19. Yeah. And then, so in Germany, it's uh, if you don't finish school in 12th or 13th grade, so when you're 18 or 19, you're not exactly allowed to go to university because you need that mm -hmm. certificate. Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't have that. But if you do this training, vocational training, and additional three years of working experience you can take an exam and get into university and that's what I did uh, wow. and then yeah so I, I, I for listeners and um, this is a fairly common thing so in Germany school you have the option as a young person to stop school earlier go to the vocational mm -hmm. school um, take the exam later if you wish to go to university um, and there's a couple of different paths you can choose as a young person so um, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a lot different from the United States. So, and I think from the UK as well, where in the United States you go to school until until twelfth grade, and then you can go to college. And there's no other pathway there. You just get a high school diploma, mm -hmm. and then you go to college if you want to go to college. Um, and if you yeah. don't get a high school uh, diploma, then there's something called a general education di diploma, a GED. Um, which is also a test, but it's not reliant on any sort of vocational training. You just have to study and pass it, and then you can also get into college, supposedly. Hmm. So the UK is somewhere in between that, I would say. So, um, so like my son, who uh, is in year eleven, so I think they match on pretty much to the GCSE and to the gym ones in terms of doing GCSEs and stuff. Um, he, after sixteen, he has to stay in educational training until he's eighteen. But it can be bricklaying, it can be, you know, philosophy, it can be anything at all. Um, and then, you know, there's the usual path to university. Uh, but if he doesn't do that, then there's uh, MVQs, like vocational qualifications you can get, which are equivalent to that. And then you can use those. And also in Scotland, there's this thing called assessing prior learning, where you can kind of trade in your experience of being in, in the workplace into getting into university. So there's kind of equivalencies and stuff. So it's, yeah, they're all broadly... There's, there's a spectrum. That's really interesting. I didn't know that about you, Anna. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know you didn't know. Uh, yeah, but uh, I don't know how it is in uh, in the UK, but in Germany, it's not like the most common way to to do this. No, like no, exactly. most people yeah. like either finish at 10th grade, do vocational training and then stay in the job they learn or they do this uh, 12th grade uh, thing and then go straight to university or maybe have a gap year or something in between. So, so what changed like from, you know, from the girl who didn't like learning when she was 15 uh, <laughs> into, I'm going to do a university course in my twenties. Like what happened there? 
Uh, I learned that I love learning if I learn the right things. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just didn't like studying mathematics or learn vocabulary for a test or like have all these exams. And I still don't like learning for exams. For example, I'm in driving school right now and it's, I don't like it. I don't like sitting there learning stuff where I know I will forget everything and I just learn it to pass the exam. I like to to do learning for for a reason and knowing why I'm doing it. And so, yeah, I went to university and learned that I actually love doing this and I'm mm. very good at it. And if grades are a marker for being really good at something, but yeah, I turned into a total nerd. I think it's, it's really interesting. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was just going to say I think it's really interesting that you um, that you kind of didn't like didn't feel like you liked learning when you were in school and now you're actually studying education and media education and um, hmm. so you're studying you know what it means to to learn and I think that's a that's that's quite an interesting transition. Yeah. Also, it's it's weird that I always wanted to do this so. Since seventh grade, I wanted to become a media educator because I came across a person in my school. He did a project with us where we uh, recorded videos and he told us how everything works. And we did this little short clips. And um, then he, I, I asked him, what's, what's his job? And he was like, yeah, I'm a media educator. And I was like, okay, cool. I want to become one. And since then, I knew what I... I wanted to to do, even though it changed in like what I'm doing, but I'm still learning to be a media educator. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting that, I mean, it's it's true for everyone, I guess, if you look back at your life, that we respond to the the how as much as the the what. So you know, it comes to which subjects you're going to choose at school to take on to the next level, and you don't just think about the subject. You, you talk about the way the subject's being presented to you and. I've had that experience in my life and also my kids' life. Um, and I think I've said this, and I've said on the podcast before, I've said to lots of people before, that I went to a really terrible school. I ended up going back into the senior management school um, when I was you know, a teacher and a senior leader. But when I left there to go and do philosophy at university, it was like chalk and cheese. It was um, so inspiring. Like these people who love their subject. Um, and you know, you could choose how you wanted to be assessed. I ended up writing Socratic dialogues in the first year of university, as opposed to writing like essays. Um, they were always there to discuss their subject. Like they lived and breathed this stuff. Um, and I, th I feel like that makes such a difference to, uh, you know, we it's, in, it's infectious. Enthusiasm is infectious. And I think sometimes we forget that when we make it very prescriptive. Yeah. So, Anna, over the last year or so, uh, you have taken over the design and management of our learnwith.weareopen.coop platform. And uh, when, you, when you took over the design and management, it was essentially a bit of a dumping ground um, for us where we were just kind of storing useful tools and stuff, but it wasn't really organized. Um, we didn't have a lot of content. And you've really taken that and put together courses, um, made, made the work accessible. Um, and over the summer, you launched a course called Feminism is for Everybody, Especially Educators. And we'd love for you to talk a little bit about this course. Why this course? Um, why this topic? What, you know, what was the experience like making it? 
Uh, yeah, so I came across uh, feminist pedagogy when I studied abroad uh, in 2021. I'm his relative. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. And um, so I had a course and the whole course was built on feminist pedagogy and uh, it was like self-assessment and everything was very critical and I really enjoyed this course. And then afterwards I got into researching what this actually means and I, even before that course, I considered myself being a feminist and also an educator and like putting both of these things together, I think are um, for me very important because I think they go very well together, especially if we want to teach people critical thinking and asking questions and be like, or creating a classroom or a learning environment where people feel welcome and yeah, there's so many things that go into this whole feminist pedagogy kind of sphere. Uh, and yeah, so I, I got into that and thought it's very interesting. And then we came uh, across the idea to to create this course initially as my capstone project for, for my internship, but then it took me much longer than expected. And glad uh thankfully i became a collaborator and could keep working on this and um yeah it was a it was a very long process for me to get into like how do i build a course out of all this research because i used this guide i found on uh on the internet from the Vanderbilt university uh in um the netherlands and it was basically a big guide with all these research in it and all these quotations and all these yeah very academical speaking things <laughs> and I wanted to make it more accessible for people who are maybe not that academic because I think that's a big problem in feminism that everything is always like it's not accessible for everybody to understand what we're talking about because it's so complicated so yeah I try to break this down and that took me quite a while because it's not and that easy <laughs> to do it even though uh, yeah because it, it wasn't that's the first what I was course. just about to ask was this the first course that you designed yeah uh yes uh, like in this kind of way of course I did some workshop planning kind of theoretical mm -hmm. things in university um but I never like wrote a course, especially in, in this format. Um, yeah, so that was something so, different. So the format that we, we, we don't, so you chose the format of an email-based course. You could have, you know, you could have done anything you wanted, but, um, and we'd, de we delivered email courses up until that point. It's not a very usual thing to deliver courses via email. Like people, when we talk about it, people go, oh, right, that's great but it's not like a usual way that you would deliver a course, like there's learning management systems and um, in-sync stuff and everything like that. So what did you feel like there were any particular challenges around delivering it via email? Was it, or was it easier? Or like when you came to design the course, like, yeah, what were some of the challenges, enablers, things which you had to consider when you had to deliver it by, via email, as it were? I think for me... Uh, at first, it made, uh, it made it harder 
because I really had to break down the content into like these small bits and pieces. And it's, I think it's hard to stay uh, like on the, like don't go too deep so people don't get overwhelmed with like the uh, everlasting email that like never, never stops. <laughs> so it has to be in that format. Uh, but I think it also helped me in, in a way to really break the things down and find a good way to explain it in a, in an easy way. So I think it was, uh, even though it was hard, it was actually very helpful to, to do it that way. And I think, uh, email format is 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 a great format for for this kind of content because uh, um, people get this into their mailbox like occasionally every three days uh, or every week or something and they can like see the the new content and click it and read it and they don't have to remember to go on a website and take the course that I that they started or something so I think it's a it's a great format for people to to keep them engaging with the content you mm. created mm. yeah one of the things that platforms tend to do these days is they'll tell you like linkedin do this so they they tell you that you've got a notification and then you have to go through to the platform to find out what it is that you know what the message was that someone sent you or what's happened to to figure out whereas the as you say the great thing about email is it's right there it's not a notification about something that's happening elsewhere it's the thing itself and I'd love to, I mean, we don't track people, but it would be really interesting to know just how many people are receiving those emails, especially with something like the feminism course, are forwarding those to either people in their organization or their friends or whatever. We only see the yeah. initial signups, um, but we don't see like the impact I think, sometimes. I think the example of LinkedIn and having to click through to your, to your message is a really good one because like... If you're in, especially from an assess, accessibility perspective, like email is a quite an accessible technology. Some of these other platforms, if you have to click through, like where, you know, there's been many a time where I've seen, oh, I have a LinkedIn notification, but I can't get it right now because my internet is too crappy to take me actually anywhere other than my email. Or, you know, I don't remember my password at the moment or, you know, whatever, whatever is keeping me. And there's, um, you know, when it comes to your own learning, I think that being able to learn when you want, where, you know, wherever you are is actually quite a, quite a powerful way to get across some of the learning objectives that you, that, you know, the designer, the course designer has set. And that's what I, I really liked about the, the feminism is for everybody, because when that course came out, I was actually on vacation and I was not online. Um, but I could still get it in my email, um, <laughs> because I signed up with a personal email account and not my work account. So I was still checking that one. And I guess that's the overlap between the open work that we do and the feminist work that we do, as in like that accessibility, that inclusivity, um, mm -hmm. that kind of approach as well. Yeah, that's what I was uh, j just thinking, that this whole email format uh, choice is actually also part of the feminist education or feminist pedagogy because we want education to be more accessible to people. And if, if it's like on LinkedIn and you have to click and then you want to log in and you forgot your password and you're just on your phone and all the passwords are only saved on your computer, you can't do it. And then you forget about it and then, yeah, it get lost and to reach more people, but also to... Yeah, 
get more people into it and interested in it. So this question might open a can of worms, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, Anna, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with the word feminism? Because I, uh, you know, because I remember when, when you were working on this course, we, we chatted about whether or not the word feminism should actually be in the title. And, you know, for listeners, if you've never looked into feminist pedagogy, pedagogy before, it's, um, it's more, it's humanistic pedagogy. You know, it's, it's about, you know, making sure that you see your learners for who they are and create safe learning environments and, you know, things that, that educators strive for anyways. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, about your experience with that word, because as a woman, I'm, I've definitely had the experience of like, uh oh, somebody is shutting down because I'm using the word feminism. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, but I think that's my inner riot or something. I'm like, no, I want to call it feminism because it is feminism and people shouldn't be afraid of feminism anymore. Um, because I think that's what, what it is, basically. I mean, feminism has this stamp on it or this mark that it's something bad, but actually it's about getting people together and creating a space where more people are allowed in and like especially if we talk about the whole intersectionality of feminism and seeing that people are discriminated by so many different things and in so many different ways and acknowledging that and like getting this into the classroom and into the learning environment and seeing power structures and all these kind of things and this is all feminism. And so we decided to to name the course like this. Um, it's like Bell Hooks wrote, wrote it as a title of, uh, of one of her books, Feminism is for Everybody. Uh, so we took that and thought it's also a good title for this course. And linking back to that Invisible Woman, Woman book, reading it as a, you know, white cisgendered man who's, you know, 41 years old, when something is designed for you, you don't like the world in this case, um, you don't feel that it's a bit like when you're running with the wind, you don't necessarily notice the wind. It's only when you're running against the wind that you, you notice the wind. Um, and so having your eyes open to the ways in which, for example, I get into my car, my car is designed for people who have bodies like me. Yeah. I get my phone. My phone is designed for people with hands the same size as me. Like, you don't realize that until it's flagged up to you. Um, and so I, yeah, I was definitely someone who was sympathetic to the aims of Black Lives Matter and feminism and stuff like that, but would not put a label on myself. And so when I see things like the Swedish government scrapping the um, feminist foreign policy, like I can see the worldview that that comes from. In this case, it's quite a right wing worldview. But it's difficult for me not to apply like a feminist label to myself now. It's like a learning process. It's a statement of intent. It's a um, it's a like a mm -hmm. self correction, I guess, as a um, or a way of including more people. So I think it's interesting when I see people who are my age or older, especially people who present as men, talk about how it's not helpful to say Black Lives Matter or saying that you've got a feminist foreign policy or whatever because they don't see necessarily that they're running with the wind or that my favorite example, a favorite metaphor is playing life 
on the easiest game mode, like play it on the easiest difficulty setting. As a gamer, like I, that totally resonates with me. Yeah, we'll have to dig up that article. There was a, a really good article that um, was quite long that was writing that was writing about how you know cis white men are starting on like the the easy game mode and how and then it went into like how you know women are white women are on you know level two or whatever and it just kind of went through different segments of of um, society and kinds of people and how hard it is it's also a reason that I really like the privilege walk exercise um, so I've I've done some um, inclusion workshops and stuff um, and there's a exercise that I wrote up. And I'll have to dig out the link uh, called the privilege walk, which is the idea is to help people understand that everybody has privilege. And so it uses statements that it's not like, um, it's not all about sex or, or race or gender identity. Um, it's also about things like, you know, you are privileged if your parents went to university or, you know, you're less privileged if you had an alcoholic as a parent and, and things like that. So really like pointing to all of the different ways that we sort of mature as human beings and the, the things that kind of, for lack of a better way to describe it, mess up our brains and make us need therapy as adults, those things <laughs> lead to more or less privilege. <laughs> and it's just really interesting when people start to have that conversation, because I think that's, you know, that's the big thing about it is just having the conversation. I just found that article. Yeah. I've got a question for Anna in a minute, but that article is on Kotaku, which is a wonderful games um, website. And it's straight white male, the lowest difficulty setting there is. And that article is now 12, sorry, uh, 10 years old. It was written in 2012. Um, so you mentioned that you would, would have considered yourself as a feminist before going to Finland in 2021 or 2020 or whatever it was. Um, so what was it about that experience? Was it like literally that you got a chance to see it in action? Like what was the, what was the difference there? Uh, as uh, for feminism or being in Finland? <laughs> oh, sorry. Like for, like for, for, like identifying more as a feminist, like seeing it as, as a more important role to play in the world. That's what it sounded like you said there, but I might've put that wrong. Uh, well, it was more about the, putting my studies together with feminism. I mean, I right. already started doing this uh, also in my home university in Germany, uh, where we also had these kind of exercises Laura just uh, talked about. And we also did this kind of privilege exercise, uh, but we, we didn't take ourselves as a role, but we each of us got a different role. And we have to, and we got asked these questions about privilege, and we have to like rethink if the person that we are playing at the moment does have this privilege or not. And then you uh, always take a step forward if you think you have that privilege, and then you can see like where the people in the room are standing. You see the kind of difference between that. And yeah, those are exercises that I think are already part of a feminist classroom or like get people into this critical thinking about discrimination and from which perspective are we telling which story and is it a, a white cis male perspective or is it one from maybe a person that actually lived somewhere where uh, their country was colonized before and now they still live with the consequences for example hmm. and uh, bringing all of this together in a classroom 
even if you don't talk about feminist topics is uh, very important i think today yeah there's a wonderful like kid version of this which you've probably seen um i'm gonna find the youtube video for it but and you've probably seen the same kind of thing where they they not only just take a step forward or whatever but then they have to run the 100 meters race but of course some kids are starting after 95 meters and some kids actually oh. are starting behind the start line yeah mm-hmm. which is oh, pretty so mean. <laughs> <laughs> no it is it is but it's um it's yeah and i think lots yeah. of people have done it around it's the like world real life but like i want to find life. the the british one because it's very very british the way they kind of do it yeah and the reason i asked that question was because i think sometimes you talked about the academic side of things and it's very difficult i remember having this explained to me and then what was that like having the difference between head knowledge and like heart knowledge and i think you talked about in the feminism course as well so you know i've always been like wanting to know things reading books it was my retreat from the world growing up in a pretty rough area that kind of thing so you kind of feel like you know stuff because you know the theory of it but you don't know the lived experience of it you don't know like how it feels to do that or how to implement it in practice that kind of stuff and so that's why i was asking the question about the lived experience of feminism when you went to finland and and that kind of thing because those the difference between the two can be quite jarring sometimes you can go into a situation feeling like you know a thing and then realizing that you don't or actually pushing something away because you think it's not for you and then having the experience of it and it, it's actually quite transformative. Mm-hmm. I had the experience falling into the world of co-ops and consent-based decision-making and all that kind of stuff. Totally not the kind of thing I would have done, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I can also add to this that I, when I started getting into feminism, I realized that loads of the things that I was experiencing were in things that I was just uncomfortable with because it's just my thing or because I'm weird or something because it's a systemic thing and there's like stuff happening and like getting more and more into feminism I noticed that men's planning for example is a thing and it's not just me getting annoyed by stuff or something it's like a lot of people do um and it actually helped me to 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 get that like yeah strength or take strength from it or feel like there's more people and so i got more and more into this whole feminism because i could relate to this because i had some of these problems and it gave me a way to deal with them so yeah i think Mm. that's why you have a um you have a very interesting way of writing weak notes um, you, you started, uh, after doing some projects and learning what weak notes are and, um, seeing that while well, Doug writes weak notes all the time, I, I generally do weak notes from about January till about two weeks later. Um, but you write feminist weak notes and in your weak notes, you kind of look at what happened to you on a weekly basis that kind of like made like kind of scratch that little part of you that made you sort of question what's going on from a systemic point of view. Um, and I, th- I think that it's, it's really interesting reading your, your feminist week notes and some of the, the little bits and pieces that pop up in your everyday life are, you know, I sit there and I read them and I'm just like, Oh yeah, 
that is a thing that happens. Huh. I never really thought of it from that, you know, from a feminist mm. perspective, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, I can say it's fun collecting these kind of things. <laughs> I always have my notes app with me and like, if something happens, I'm like, Oh, that's something for my week notes. Uh, even though I wouldn't call them week notes, but anyway, <laughs> um, they're, they're like, yeah, month it's notes. like it's happened. <laughs> yeah. Or something in between that. Um, but yeah, it's like interesting because all these things kept happening always. Like I already started thinking about starting a countdown or a count up of all the times I get catcalled and just put a number there because all these things happen and people kind of talk about it, but also not really. And I just thought, why, why not? And, uh, started writing these and yeah, it's, more and more stuff that I collect and will put in there. We could go a lot further. There's, there's a couple of questions I want to ask, and one would just open too much of a. Of, I'll ask it, but we'll sit, maybe we'll have to stop it. So, <laughs> um, I was we I was listening to a podcast. Obviously, there's been lots of politics happening, even more so in the UK recently, um, <laughs> which is yeah a whole other <laughs> podcast. Um, but one of the things in the one of the podcasts I was listening to about politics was talking about the role of social media um, for good and for worse in terms of politics and society and stuff. And one of the things that I've noticed, certainly over the last 10, 12 years, since a lot more people joined things like Twitter, etc., is that, yes, there's lots of trolling and abuse. But the flip side of that is you get a lot more um, social justice campaigns. So you get a lot more like the Me Too campaign. Um, you get people realizing that actually this isn't just me or something that I'm doing wrong, but something which is structural, something that we can overcome together and actually something which like lots of people need to address. Um, and I guess what you're talking about there is making things visible and then sharing them with other people. And then that potentially leads to a path of, of resistance or changing or, or something like that. And I guess that's a learning thing as well. That's a it's a way of helping people take action uh, to change the world. Yeah, because I think it's kind of a way to help people reflect on maybe also their behavior, but also like these are actual things that happen to me or to other people that I know. And I think reading about it, it makes it more real because I think that's also a big problem in social media that most of or a lot of things don't seem real anymore and like i think it's important for these kind of topics to yeah show people that this is not just a fun video on the internet or something but real real topics we have to talk about and mm. yeah so last question <laughs> <laughs> we hear a lot of stuff about kind of the metaverse and there was a big controversy in my little bubble of the internet about a demo which happened uh, by Meta, the people who own Facebook, where they did a demo where there were legs in the VR world that they were presenting, which is an unusual thing to do. They were found to be faked, and this is a massive deal. And then Microsoft went into some kind of ag agreement with Meta to have like Excel spreadsheets in the metaverse. And there's all of this stuff, like in the crypto space as well, just like churn and like lots of press releases and whatever, and people saying how we're going to learn in future, um, immersive learning experiences. I, I guess 
I don't know what a feminist version of that would look like. And I don't know even if we would want or need that kind of approach. And I wondered for you, someone who's a lot younger than me, and I'm not going to comment on Laura, um, <laughs> about the wow. same age as Laura, about the same age as Laura, even though she's your aunt. Um, <laughs> You're older than me, but that's fine. Moving on. I am totally. I am totally. I just didn't want to comment on your age. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be <laughs> diplomatic here. <laughs> You are young. You're both younger just, than me. And, and, and now I'm just thinking about, like, what is the feminist response there? Because we don't actually talk about women's ages because the way that women age in society and the way that older women, women are looked at in society is completely different than the way that older men are looked at. Um, anyways, mm-hmm. moving on. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that you were being anti-feminist or something. I was saying, like, what would have been my, like, what would have been the feminist response for me to, well it's interesting like, because i was brought up by my um my mother my mother's mother was a, a cook and her dad was a butler and so they spent a lot of time in like rich people's houses and tried to have some of those manners and so i was supposed to be a gentleman and even now like i i walk on the correct side of the road next to people who are who are women and girls and like i do all that stuff to be a gentleman but then some of the stuff that i do as a result of that is seen as not sexist, but like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to do this stuff. Is what I'm no, saying. No, no, yeah, but <laughs> and I that's that's the thing that I find really interesting about the topic is is like you know holding the door open for someone is common courtesy in my opinion. Yeah. I was raised yeah, yeah. to hold the door open for the person behind me, but if a man holds the door open for a woman, it's looked at differently than if a woman holds open the door for a man. Like there's a there's a there's a gender element in one of those situations that doesn't exist in the other. And I think that's, you know, and, and that's where, you know, this, this entire conversation gets, gets tricky and hard is because I, even I don't know how to, how to respond to those um, social norms that are gender based. Anna, do you have some advice for us there? (laughs) (laughs) well, I think opening doors uh, is good for either gender. <laughs> I think both genders can open doors. Um, if we practice hard I, I, I read an article once where somebody tried to explain the, the thing why it can be um, seen as sexist if a man keeps opening the doors. Like, for example, going back and opening it for the woman or like always jump in the way to open that door and get like this kind of way and like okay let me do this for you all the time and then it gets uh weird but also like acknowledging that women can open doors as well is like in, in a meta sense <laughs> Lo and i want to call with and, a... yeah with, with age just talk mm. about age i mean yeah i think we have to overcome this mm. and like well the age thing's interesting women in every age we were on a, a call with a, a male client recently who said that for the first time, and he's probably, you know, a bit older than Laura and I, like he, he, someone had given up their seat or tried to give up their seat for him for the first time. And just how mortified he was. <laughs> that someone had done that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Um, right. uh, there are some norms that are weird. Yeah. 
Let's go back to that metaverse question because that's a good. Uh, we were we, Doug was trying to ask, and he was trying to ask with the multiverse and you know crypto bros and Excel spreadsheets and VR goggles and all of this kind of thing. Um, what Doug was going to ask, which I'm reading from the show notes, was um, what do you think the future of learning looks like as someone who's in university and um, working already in the education space and in the ed tech space? What do you what do you hope for the future of learning or what do you see coming that you know gets you excited? Uh, yeah, I think it's easier to talk about the things that I hope are happening in the future than what I like see for the future maybe uh, but yeah the more f for me the more feminist approach is like getting away from this capitalizing or like this capitalist view of education to like get better and better to earn more money and growth we always need growth and everything has to yeah uh get better and better and like turning maybe away from that and see education as a way to i don't know build more democracy and make people smarter and raise their voices and step step up for themselves and help them yeah evolve <laughs> into these kind of things and yeah i mean i think all the things that are currently happening political wise are also a lack of education or the wrong approach to education maybe so uh yeah that's what i hope that we get to uh more knowledge because of knowledge kind of uh things mm. and in in terms of like where do i see the education i think this i i don't like this whole thing about it everything is just online uh, because I think we we need that social more social component. Uh, so I think this hybrid kind of way that some universities are already uh, doing, uh, where you can go to the university but also get loads of stuff online and have this like yeah hybrid model of like learning. Mm. I think that's a good way forward. And yeah, lost my track uh, train of thoughts, but yeah. That's what I think. I think we're going to have to get you back on to talk about um, what kinds of things should be learned in formal education versus the kinds of things that actually you need to learn outside oh, yeah. of formal learning. Because um, I see a lot of the times people saying, oh, we should be taught that in school, as if like everything should be taught in school by teachers. Um, so maybe we, we should get you back on to talk about that some at some point. Yeah. But Anna, that's well, been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and uh, thank you very much. We've learned, <laughs> we've learned what your favorite books are. We've learned about um, where you learned um, lots about kind of feminism. We've learned about your your feminism course and about the way that you like learning and your predictions for the future. Is there anything else you want to say before we before we put a, a stop to to this particular conversation? Nothing I can think about right now. Well, thank you so much for being here, Anna. It's always a pleasure yes. to be in virtual and real me. life spaces with you. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers for now.